This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. Today we are going to talk about the streaming wars. Yes, it's 2022. We are still talking about the streaming wars. They're important. Um, and in fact, we haven't talked about them for a bit. We're going to get a refresher today. But before we get to that, I'd like to promote, that's the correct verb, two things I think you may be interested in consuming since you're listening to this podcast. The first is a brief interview I did with outgoing Warner Media CEO Jason Kyler. That went up on Tuesday. That's available on Vox.com. That's a brief conversation. Um, he does not explain what he's going to do next, nor does he explain how angry he is at David Zaslav or how he feels slighted by the Hollywood. But it's a, it's a pretty good and brief interview. And also, since you're listening to this on Thursday, um, you can go and find my new media column, which debuted at Vox.com on Wednesday going to have a name someday. I don't know what the name is now, but it's Peter Kafka's media column. Uh, this one's about the New York Times and their attempt to diversify the audience and why they spent $600 million to do that by buying The Athletic. Um, for now, you can get it for free at Vox.com. It's always going to be free. Uh, eventually, you'll be able to click a button and have it delivered to you via email. We're working on that technology. We're going to figure out how to get it done fairly soon. Uh, it's not a Substack. It's not a newsletter. It'll just be delivered to your inbox. Um, we can call it an email. Sound good? Okay, good. It's free. I think you'll like it if you listen to this podcast. Okay, I'm done promoting my own content. Oh, I'm not done promoting my own content. I'm going to tell you what's happening right now. I'm talking to Michael Nathanson, the excellent analyst who frequently comes to our Code Media conferences. We often cite his work in these podcasts, in my stories. Um, he's going to tell us about the state of TV viewing and, and why Wall Street, which was telling all the streamers to go stream, 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 is now saying, hey, wait a minute. You should actually have profits too and, and the buying that has put them in. And then I talked to Don Shmuleski, my old colleague from Recode, who is now at Reuters, has written a book about the streaming wars, and Julia Alexander, who used to work at The Verge covering streaming and now works for Parrot Analytics, where she gets to see the data that we were always guessing about in terms of what people actually want to consume and why they subscribe for services. Three interesting people, two interesting conversations. I think you're going to like them. Here's me and Michael Nathanson. I'm here with Michael Nathanson. Uh, one of the best analysts I get to talk to on a regular basis. I'm going to say the best analyst I get to talk to on a regular basis. Welcome, Michael. That's so kind of you. Well, I, I got to butter you up, but it's also accurate. Um, I like you so much that we have you speak at our Code Media conferences often. We haven't had one in a while. We hope to have one again in the nearish future. But in the meantime, we'll, we'll settle for a podcast uh, conversation. I want to talk to you about some of the research you've done on the state of TV viewing and, and how Wall Street is thinking about the streaming business right now. I want to start by talking about an annual report you put out. It's called The State of Linear Viewing. This means who's watching TV, who's not watching TV anymore. It's a really good report. You just put it out recently. And the really important takeaway here is that everything, and I think most people know this, but you put it out in really stark, in stark contrast. The numbers are, are hard to refute. Your takeaway line here is, in the end, linear viewing appears to headed to a world of live programming while almost every other genre is served on demand. So we're going to watch sports and maybe some award shows and news on TV 
And everything else we, we watch on demand on a streaming service or at least a DVR. Am I, am I summing that up correctly? Yes, Peter. We've, we thought that was going to happen five, six years ago. We both did. But the numbers are now irrefutable, and the pandemic has accelerated that trend. What, so, you think, so this is something we all saw coming for a long time, and you think the pandemic just put it over the top? Yeah, because what happened was the pandemic motivated media companies to ship their best content to streaming because we on Wall Street rewarded those companies with higher stock prices, right? So it was almost like Pavlovian. Hey, if we make a streaming service with a lot of content on it with subscribers, we will get rewarded. So they've been shifting more and more of the content over to streaming and, and really debilitating their linear business because of that. And they were trying for a long time to have it both ways, and they still are, right? They still are putting new programming on on conventional linear TV. Yeah. Uh, ESPN is an outlier here because sports is still doing well. Yeah. Um, are any of the big conglomerates in particular trying harder than the others to keep their linear business going and keeping their premier product on TV instead of streaming? Well, there's one big outlier. It's Fox, because Fox sold all their content. Mm-hmm. Fox sold their studio and FX and the pieces of Hulu to Disney. And what was left at Fox is Fox News, Fox Broadcast, Fox Sports. They have no other choice, but oddly enough, having no other choice, they have, they have a really good strategy, which is we're gonna keep everything live in the bundle, and therefore what's in the bundle that we provide will go up in value because it's gonna be exclusive to the bundle. That's the only strategy for the bundle that makes sense in my mind. So we know sports still does well live. Uh, it's still dipping. It has dipped over time, but it is, is still holding up. The NCAA semifinal, I think, on Saturday was maybe the second highest rated version of that game in, in history. Um, the other stuff, though, still seems like it's going to be plummeting just as fast. Uh, Oscars, Grammys, that sort of award shows. Anything else that the, the networks can do to arrest that decline? That decline's happening because of fragment. Uh, put music aside. Music's always been fragmented. Mm-hmm. But that decline's happening in entertainment because of those movies that are nominated for the best movies. I've surveyed my teammates here, all media analysts. No one saw Coda except for me. No one saw Power of the Dog except for me. I'm the oldest one on the team. But when those movies are being nominated, Peter, what are you going to do about it, right? And then you look at television – my gosh, Ted Lasso is a, is a great show, but up until it won an award or before that, Marvelous Miss Maisel, the viewership was was tiny, right? So those shows are going down because of fragmentation. There's just there's less of a rally around the um, the TV set to watch our favorite stars win an award. There's just too many too many too much content and too little time. And then news, um, which had been strong during the Trump era and the pandemic, that has also fallen again precipitously. Yeah. And that's not uh, that that's irrespective of, of political affiliation. Fox News, MSNBC, CNN, and they're all down double digits year over year. Yeah. And we're assuming, you know, 2020 was a, an incredibly strong news year. But again, what we wonder about in 2022 and beyond is will we get back to somewhat normal levels? Like it, it is declined a ton. I think it's just a really tough compare from 2020. But it remains to be seen because more people are now putting their news like CNN Plus and Fox Nation over the top. And will that cause fragmentation as well? I, I don't know. It's too early to say. So you started off by saying, look, I'm partly to blame for this. Me and, and Wall Street as a, as a, yes. as a whole have, have pushed the big entertainment companies to move their best stuff to streaming, to on demand. The stuff that's left on linear is, is, is less useful. 
But there's also now, in the, in the last few months, and you've been leading the charge on this, a reassessment from the big media company saying, well, wait, wait a minute. Um, we thought we were going to get rewarded with really high stock prices if we did this. And now we're not because now apparently people like Michael Nathanson want us to pay attention to profitability. Uh, so yes. w- what has happened there? I mean, this was clearly something that anyone could have seen that they were going to be losing money at best at the beginning of this process. And, and the theory was that was fine because they were going to get rewarded like Netflix used to get rewarded for growth. So what shifted? Well, it starts with that, with that Netflix presumption is that for the longest time, Netflix defied my vision of logic because over the many, many years, Netflix stock price, the enterprise value was massive and they had never generated free cash flow, meaning that they never had free cash from their operations. They had to keep borrowing money. Yeah, except for during the pandemic. And that happened because there was not a lot of new production and there was a, a people stuck at home. Okay. So. You know, we were we were for many years saying, look, I get it. You know, this is going to be a great story. And that story drove the stock price. But fundamentally, it takes a long term view of a business to drive the value that Netflix had. Interest rates were incredibly low and Netflix was the pioneer, right? They were the innovator. But now what you see, Peter, is that there's just more and more people chasing streaming. One of one of my friends slash former executives at Universal said, you know, when I was at Universal, he said, we would spend all year trying to find a movie window on a weekend where we would have the only window because we didn't want to compete with Disney or Warners. Now, in any given weekend, there are seven different streaming services with seven different, seven different premieres. It's just a terrible model, in my view, for people that really want to create, you know, free cash flow, right? It's a great model to add subs, but I'm not sure that subs only is the real definition of a good business, right? So we've been on this rant forever. And what's weird about Wall Street is, Peter, if you and I opened up restaurants in New York and we said, we're starting a, a thousand restaurants starting tomorrow, we would not be rewarded with a market cap you know, for the success of the restaurants. People would say, well, let me judge you and see how you do over time. The restaurant's profitable. But in streaming world, thanks to what Disney did way back when, they made an announcement and their stock prices went up. And the light bulb went off and everyone else had, well, oh, look, if we make an announcement and give people targets on subscriber growth five years hence, we'll be rewarded. Let's have some pity for the poor media. Now, they're not poor. They get paid very well. The, the poor media executive, the poor media CEO says, you guys pushed me to a streaming world. You told me to grow, grow, grow. I did it. I moved a bunch of stuff. I weakened my core business. Now you're telling me I shouldn't have done that. What do I do now? Yeah, well, it's interesting. Uh, maybe the first two or three should have done this. It's going to be harder for the next. Basically, our view is there needs to be consolidation here. You need the weaker hands. And everyone's going to debate whether or not they have a weak hand. The funny thing is, if you had a media executive sitting across from you and not me, they would all tell you how great their hand is, yeah. right? But in short order, both HBO Max and Discovery Plus agreed to merge, right? Like in the past, since we last talked, well, that's not true, but it's in the past year, there's been a merger of two guys who were late to the game and now they're, they're, they're trying to get bigger by consolidation, right? Right. And everyone believes there will be more. I just talked to Jason Kyler, who's leaving HBO, Warner Media, because Discovery bought his company. Uh, he says there's going to be more consolidation. Let's, let's just do some predictions. Who is buying who in the next year? Everyone wants Comcast 
to be a buyer or a seller? Are, are they going to be able to make a move? Well, Craig, my partner, covers Comcast, and his frustration with Comcast is that Comcast should split NBC Universal mm -hmm. from its cable business. Spoiler alert, they don't want to do that. And then they should have NBCU get ready to try to make an offer to John Malone and, jo and Zazov two years out to buy HBO and Warner's. Like the right asset to me, and no offense to people at Discovery, was NBC Universal plus Warner Brothers. They're highly aware HBO. of that. The Discovery people, yes. when I talk to them, they say, we were able to get this deal done because NBC Universal couldn't do it because they're still bound up from their last acquisition. So we, right, we, we, right, we, we, right. we had a window to do this, and we're highly aware they would right. like to have done it. Right. Now, people are pushing, well, why doesn't NBC Universal go by Paramount? But if you think about well, it's at Paramount, you, you can't own CBS and the stations because you've got you, – there are laws about two network ownership and all that station mm -hmm. overlap. Uh, if you're a Comcast, you really want to buy Viacom's cable nets as part of that? Probably not. You'd like to have Paramount Studios, maybe Paramount Plus, maybe Showtime. I don't think that deal happens anytime soon. I think if you're Brian Roberts at NBCU – you sit off to the side, you see how the market responds to Discovery, Warner Media, and you just wait. But you have to acknowledge that in order to get this deal done, you have to spin out NBC Universal from Comcast. And that's something they've not been willing to consider, but they're gonna have to do that at some point to get this deal done. What, what is their opposition to spinning it off? They have a very, very, very good uh, broadband business, right? That's a great business, yes. Um, yes. well-situated for the future. Um, what is the point of trying to tie that to NBC Universal? There's no synergy there. Well, they would argue, not to put words, because that they they trade synergies by being able to use their footprint to promote NBC Universal shows and their movies. Remember, there was this whole pitch when Steve Burke was there that was Project Symphony, and they yes. were able to. You know, I, I I and one of my colleagues at one at a very fine newspaper wrote a story. Uh, uh, arguing that that was the case, but I don't believe anyone actually believes that. So you just you think you think they are they are dug in on that and they just refuse to acknowledge that this thing they put together ten years ago should be broken up. Yes, including Sky. Don't forget Sky's in there as well. Which again, Craig would say to you, he hated the Sky deal. There are a slew of smaller players, the AMC's, Viacom's of the world. Everyone assumes they will get bought at some point. You can also make good arguments for they, why they won't get bought because they've got these legacy businesses that are declining. So someday they will get bought. And then for years, you and I have talked about what, what the big tech guys are going to do and whether or not they would be able – want to or be able to buy any of these assets. Um, yeah. They clearly haven't to date. It seems politically it would be very difficult for them. Uh, in this environment to to buy, especially something that has a you know a, a broadcast component to it, do you see any any scenario where an Apple or an Amazon or a Netflix buys one of these big assets? Well, we just had Amazon buy MGM, which I always said to you was never going to happen, right? Especially the price they paid, because why you know what are you getting MGM? I think that's more of an AVOD push. But I think what Apple has shown you is that they're able to play this game their own way which is they'll buy movies from Sundance. They'll you know put first-class content producers in business. I think Apple won't buy a legacy media company. Like they've had a chance now twice to buy HBO and Warner's. Mm -hmm. You know, Warner Media has been up for sale twice and they've not been able to, they've not shown an interest in buying it. So I would say that probably proves it. And I think Netflix doesn't need to buy to buy a studio. Maybe they need to add advertising outside the U.S. We'll talk, we shall have that some other time if you want. But 
No, I, I think I don't see I don't see the rationale for why a tech company would want to go out and buy a traditional media company when you could buy rights and producers and creative, you know, the creative people without having to buy a studio. You could build it yourself. So we've got half dozen more, depending on how you count, streaming services out there right now. Everyone agrees that's too many, that they will consolidate. Um, when when does that number shrink significantly? Do do Are we in this state for a year, two years, five years? Two or three years from here. We're, we're still in the early stages of this. And they only tap out when, consolid- when consolidation makes sense. When, when you have a chance for Comcast to go after HBO, or Paramount to do something like you, you, you're going to, you're going to need families, Robert's family, Redstone family, or John Malone to decide enough's enough for you to consolidate. So everyone who believes there are a handful of rich people controlling the world when it comes to media and streaming, they're kind of right. Um, I think we should leave it there. We should have one of these conversations in person at a conference someday. Thank you, Michael. I agree, Peter. I agree. And I'll shut my phone off when I do that. I promise you. Deal. Thanks again to Michael Nathanson. In a minute, we'll hear from Don Shemaleski and Julia Alexander. But first, a word from an excellent sponsor. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. I'm here with two of my former co-workers, two of my former pals, current pals, former co-workers. Delighted to have them in the office with me. Don Shemaleski used to work with me at Recode and was all things D a thing for us? Uh, I came in after that. After era. that. Okay. My former Recode co-worker, Don Shemaleski, now works at Reuters. And my former Vox Media co-worker, Julie Alexander, has gone over to be a business person mm-hmm. at Parrot Analytics. Welcome welcome back, both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Delighted to have both of you. We want to talk about the world of streaming, which is something we have all spent tons of time covering them uh, over the years. Don has just written a book about it. It's called Binge Time, Inside Hollywood's Furious Billion-Dollar Battle to Take Down Netflix. And Julia, as podcast listeners know, would come with on this show every other week and talk about a new streaming launch with me. And we've kind of stopped doing that. We kind of seem like we're over the the minute-to-minute coverage of the streaming wars, but it's obviously they're in full form. They're, they are raging as we speak. Um, as we're having this conversation, Jason Kylar is being deposed as the head of Warner Media because Discovery is taking over Warner Media. The stuff is still in motion. There's many things left to play out. So I wanted to check in and see how things are going. That is my long-winded preamble. Hi, guys. Hey, hey Peter. Um <laughs> Let's start with Don. Don, you wrote a book about the streaming wars, which are still going on. It's it's a great book. It's it's if you have listened to this podcast at all, you will recognize some of the stories here, and a lot of them will be there'll be new information. Why write about a thing that is still sort of ongoing, where you don't know how the end is going to play out? We don't know if Netflix is going to be caught or toppled. We don't know whether 
uh, HBO Max Discovery Plus is going to be the next CISO or whether it's going to be a real contender. You also wrote about CISO, which I do want to talk about. We absolutely will. <laughs> what, what was the impetus to write about a thing that is still in motion? My uh, co-writer, Dade Hayes, and I observed it was a bit like writing on an Etch-a-Sketch uh, because we would begin – our work and the, the the space was changing so rapidly. But we thought that this was uh, a significant moment in media history and we wanted to to capture it sort of like in amber yeah. because this will be a period of time that we'll reflect on later. We know that, you know, predicting the future is a dangerous business. Um, we're, not in the, we're not hoping to, you know, be able to see into the future, but we could see that the whole industry was transforming. I mean, by 2017, when Bob Iger, the Walt Disney Company CEO, announced that he was pulling content off of Netflix to build his own streaming service, that was an inflection point of the industry. That was sort of the starting gun, right? Exactly. Everyone knew this was happening. Everyone had finally finally figured out that Netflix was eating Hollywood's lunch, that Hollywood had been serving them for right. years. And then they eventually they're like, hey, this is a problem. We should do something about it. And it was Disney that formally kicked that off. As, as someone who's covered both the tech world and the media world, I know we in the, the tech journalism community tend to look at Hollywood as a bunch of Luddites. And I think that that's not wholly accurate. I think that as with any 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 time a company is confronted with this classic innovator's dilemma, the old business is still wildly lucrative as a disruptor is taking taking claiming laying claim to the future. And so there were a lot of internal tensions in all of the companies that we cover. And over the course of interviewing what felt like a thousand people for for this book, we discovered that there had been numerous conversations yep. within these media companies. Hey, should we buy Netflix? And there were the traditionalists who were counting down the years to retirement who who said, you know, no. no no, we don't need Netflix. Everything's fine. My annual bonus is fine. And there were the futurists who were saying, you know, this is an opportunity for us to seize the future. And so there were these tensions playing out for years. Yeah, we had James Andrew Miller in uh, earlier this year, and he did this big HBO oral history, and he's got anecdotes there about folks at War what was then called Time Warner <laughs> debating whether to buy or create their own Netflix. Exactly. Julia. Yes. Like I said, you were, you were this crazed chronicler of all things streaming, you could not stop posting stuff. Your bosses even said, we need to ask Julia to stop posting so much, but you wouldn't. <laughs> you went over to the business side. Did you immediately go, oh, I didn't understand something, and now that I have access to data, you were at Parent Analytics, they, they, they track what people are consuming, what they want to consume online, uh, they try to estimate that. Did you immediately go, oh, I, I was missing something all of these years, and now the, the, the veil has been lifted? Or was it kind of, no, I kind of did understand it from the from the outside, and now I'm getting a little bit more refined data. A little bit of both. The first thing that stood out to me was that, so we spend so much time in the media, uh, as media journalists, covering consumption. We put the main value on consumption because it is what has historically been what has been the most valuable. The idea that you put advertisements on shows, and if you have a lot of people watching that show, you can charge for higher advertising. Like, that was what created a very lucrative revenue cycle. In the direct-to-consumer marketplace, the idea of consumption is one part of the value equation, but it does not create the entire valuation of a show or movie. I say this a lot. It sounds really lame and corny, but the monetization of love, the ability to create something that takes over someone's entire life, even for a day or for a week, that is what leads to people deciding to sign up for an independent streaming service versus when you are you ha you pay for cable, you pay for whatever, you get all these channels at once. You're just kind of flipping through and seeing what you're gonna what you're gonna watch, but everything's there. 
With streaming, you are making that choice to sign up for the service, to stay signed up for the service. So what the data really allowed me to do, which was fun, is really dig into what creates a high acquisition title for a subscriber. What is the typically movie or big TV show that will bring a subscriber in? And then really sit down with, okay, once they're there, how do you create what is inherently a new cable package, but instead of networks, you have different movies and TV shows that you're handpicking to make a valuable proposition for them, to make them pay $12, $13, $14 a month, and that will continue to increase. And so I just was able to sit with that data and try to figure out the anomalies in a way that I could not, as a journalist, getting a lot of my data from traditional sources. There's a lot there. I want to unpack it for a second. So to to sum up, one one of the things that Parrot does yeah. is say it says we can tell if people are coming to Disney Plus because they're interested in the Mandalorian yeah. versus Moon Knight. Yeah. Moon Knight is a new Disney Plus show that I actually want to see, but I have yet to actually turn it on. And we can determine whether people whether Disney Plus is bringing in people based on demand for that show. Did I did I get that right? Exactly. So one of the better examples today would be there's an HBO Max show didn't get a lot of pre-marketing attention from Taika Waititi um, called Our Flag Means Death. That show got no marketing attention. It had a weird release schedule. It was like three episodes, then two episodes and three episodes um, because they're messing around it with it. It looks really release. weird and interesting. And it's it's basically, you know, Ted Lasso meets the office and, and it's very cute and with wholesome pirates. with pirates. <laughs> and the thing about this show is it skyrocketed to the top of like HBO Max's demand. It overtook Euphoria. And so we play a game always with data, which is okay, how much of this speaks to actual uh, consumption and therefore um, signing up? How much does it speak to the revenue side of things for HBO Max? And all of we heard all these stories from people who were like, I signed up for HBO Max for the show. And we saw that reflected in the demand where they are saying, I want to go watch the show. I'm going to sign up for it. And now they're on HBO Max and they're watching other things. You hear this all the time with Euphoria. People signed up for Euphoria. And now they're watching The Sopranos. They're watching old HBO because they have access to it. Those are the type of titles that if the demand increases really there, it translates 95% 95% of the time to increase in subscriber acquisition. I was talking to a Warner Media person who's not Jason Kyler who said, what do you think of uh, the the new Lakers show? And I said, eh, it's, it's okay. Yeah. I want it to be better. He said, oh, we're really disappointed. We thought it would do really well. It's not. And I said, well, you know, it could be worse. It could be the Sex and the City show that everyone hated. And he said, that that and Euphoria were our two best yeah. titles in the last year. So everyone, the fact that, that that Sex and the City was a thing that people spent time on national TV shows discussing how much they hated, it didn't matter or it drove conversation. Do, do you have any, do you have a sense of whether that, whether that conversation then drove people to watch it or there were just a large group of people who were watching Sex and the City, enjoying it and not spending time on social media talking about how much they hated it? Well, it's funny because I think a lot of people who wanted to watch that show, I think about uh, my mom, for example, does not have HBO Max. She has HBO and she was like, I would like to watch the Sex and the City show. And I said, you got you to gotta sign up for a new streaming service and then it's in there. And so she was like, I'm not going to do that. I think what that has, that type of show has the same effect that you see with a lot of B-type movies where something like Morbius, which just came out with Jared Leto from Sony, it's a typical superhero movie, but it's not doing too well. So many, but the demand for it is high. That's the type of movie that would do so well on streaming because you're just telling someone if you spend six, seven bucks or excuse me, more like 10 to 15 bucks, you can watch this at home and then you have access to other things. 
And just like that is the same type of show where you're going to sign up to watch what's happening. Then once you're in HBO, HBO Max, I've been on the record saying this. I think it has the best catalog offering bar none. It is one of the best streaming services from a content perspective, not from a tech perspective, bar none. And so what they just need is this constant string of shows to get people in. And then once you're in, it's pretty hard to cancel HBO Max, I find. Related to that. Netflix, um, you guys are frequently cited in stories about how Netflix has real competition. They're no longer lapping everyone else. That everyone uh, People have caught up to them in various ways. And they will often cite your data saying, look at all these shows that people want to watch and they're not Netflix shows. And I understand what your data is saying, which is that people are very interested in very specific shows that are on other networks. It doesn't mean they're not watching Netflix or that they're not enjoying or valuing Netflix, right? Not, not by any means. And Netflix is still, you know, the largest streaming service. They're still – their growth is slowing, but they are still growing. And, like, that I think is extremely impressive. I mean, they're going to hit a point – you know, the streaming wars, the colloquial term, will turn into the retention wars in the United States and Canada in the next two years. Seems like that's where Netflix is already, right? Yeah. I mean, there are very few people, practically speaking, who – don't have Netflix who want to get Netflix. Right. And there's an economic model for this that um, you guys know from the tech industry, which is the idea of early adopters and then mainstream adopters. And then you hit your point. And there are a lot of charts that you see from executives, seasoned executives who just keep the ch- the line going up. And that's not how it works. The line has to come back down. So what we're entering with Netflix specifically, but the other ones will do it as well. Disney trying to figure out what they want to do with the metaverse and how Disney Plus gets incorporated is we're in this really beautiful moment of R&D. Where they're like, okay, what's next? We have the streaming. We're kind of tapped out in the United States and Canada at this point because we're still, you know, pay TV households are still there. It's still a very strong business. It's declining, but it's still there. And so they're like, we we have this figured out. Um, what's next for Netflix? It's games. For Disney, it's it's incorporating some form of theme park thing with Disney+. Plus. So that's exciting. That's like, oh, well, in a few years, we may have something that's really interesting again that sees another early adopter and then mass adoption on the consumer side. But until then... All that we're seeing is, you know, Netflix's market share in 2021 went down 10 percent from where it was in terms of demand. And that was the exact same demand that we saw in HBO Max, uh, Disney Plus and Apple TV Plus. And it just said, yeah, there's competition. So if you're not only competing with each other for time and adoration, you're competing with Fortnite, TikTok, YouTube. But this is not to say that Netflix is by any means, you know, in like it's the end of Netflix. By any means, Netflix is still has the largest demand share for the originals. It's still has the largest demand share across its catalog. It's just at a point where it has 75 million households in the U.S. Do you have evidence or, or, or suggestion of evidence that people who have Netflix and then they see that there's a new Morbius show or they want to watch Yellowstone and they have to figure out if it's on Paramount or Peacock, or, that they go, oh, I want to watch that. I have Netflix. Netflix doesn't have that. I have finite money. I'm going to stop paying Netflix. I'm going to churn out of that and subscribe to another thing. Or do they, or are they just adding on another service? It depends on the service. Netflix is pretty consistent. There's always something on Netflix. I mean, this is a, a company that's putting out one to two movies a week at a time when the major studios are pulling back theatrical and trying to figure out how to do the same thing on streaming. Like they're the type of company that has a major show every three weeks. It's really hard to cancel Netflix if they're if you're just interested in general entertainment as a whole. Statistically, we see two to four streaming services per household. And for the most of that, I would put money on it's Disney Plus, HBO Max and um, Netflix. 
Um, what we do see, and this is kind of my prediction, is that we will see more experimentation with lock-in in terms of signups. The month-to-month does produce more churn than anything else, and that means their the potential lost revenue is just as up there with password well, this sharing. This is super important. So you're saying that all these services right now mm-hmm. encourage you to pay month-to-month. There, They tell you you can pay month-to-month. And then people do, and they, they sample something and they churn out. I have Paramount Plus right now because I'm watching European soccer, and then that will end and then I'll stop paying for it. I kind of assume that I'm in the minority there because I have to think about what I'm paying for and go in and turn it off. It's not hard, but it's still something I have to do. But you're saying that the the services want to move away from that and sign you up for a year, encourage you to pay for a year. It's my it's my opinion. I mean, if we think about what made cable work really well for the companies, not for us per se, but it was this idea of trying to cancel cable was the most tedious affair in your life. Like you had a call and it was the worst time that you would you'd spend three hours on the phone with someone. Um, with the beauty of streaming, the promise that came from it was this a la carte, right? It was this idea of, hey, you can sign up and then you pay per month and we're hopefully going to keep you per month. It's why Netflix's most important metric is the the lowest engaged users because they want to know how do we keep you? We don't want to lose you. We want to make sure that we're tailoring to you. The the the, the um, big consumers, the ones who are consuming every day, they're less worried about. They're like, you're fine. No matter what we put out, you're good. Um, and so if they can get into a place where they're like, hey, we're going to discount three months, you sign up for three months, your churn rate's going to decline. This is to say Netflix has the lowest churn rate in terms of keeping customers out of anyone in the industry. It's like 2.7%. And the end industry average is like 5%. Um, but do you think they're going to come to me or one of you guys and say, we're going to slice a dollar off your monthly pay, your monthly fee if you pay us for a year? Do you think Is that a discussion they're having, Don? I see that as highly unlikely. I mean, so in markets, in mature markets like the U.S., um, they've demonstrated that consumers are, are willing to pay more to to receive the content that they love. And you know, maybe for me it's Bridgerton, maybe for you it's something else. But there's a there's enough diversity of content that they found a way to retain subscribers month over month, and enough reason to justify that. So there's there, ra- rather than than reduce the revenue to sort of reduce churn. They're going to spend more to keep me exactly. That, so that to, to keep producing going. this high high quality content, and um, and that gives Netflix the flexibility to move to other markets, which is where the streaming wars is migrating now to places like Korea and Japan and India, uh, where which are much more price sensitive. As, as we know, India, for example, a cable TV subscription costs. $3 a month. So there's no way that that market can bear the kind of f- the cost of content production. So, um, so so Netflix will use these established markets where it has high penetration, a high number of subscribers to sort of subsidize its growth in these other places. Don, for years, we wrote about how much Netflix was spending on content, and they were proud to put that number out. They were also upfront about how much money they were burning at the time. They were burning billions of dollars. There was a debate about whether that was sustainable. It seems like it has worked out for them. They're no longer they're basically break even at this point. Um, they're no longer burning. They don't have to keep borrowing money. Um, and one of the questions for every one of the streamers who was chasing after them is how are you going to compete? And they all had different answers, but none of them, as far as I can tell, are spending the equivalent amount of money that Netflix continues to spend. Um, sometimes they'll they'll fudge it, right? Discovery will say, we're spending $20 billion on content too, but they're talking about what they're spending on everything, their linear networks and stuff that isn't in the streaming services. And everyone else is having a debate about 
we want to spend more money, but we also have to keep these other businesses going. Um, we want people to keep watching ABC and ESPN. And so we're not going to move everything off of that and put it on Disney Plus or ESPN Plus um, all the way down to places like Comcast Peacock, which just has some stuff um, because they're still connected to the cable network model. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's going to net out somewhere where everyone sort of reaches some sort of steady state and says, all right, we don't have to spend what Netflix is spending because we have other assets? Or is someone eventually going to go, no, no, we are going to go toe-to-toe and spend the equivalent amount to create the the steady stream, this rain of content that people want? I think what I've seen over the years is sort of various strategies. Different players have different objectives. Apple, for instance, is looking for a reason to keep me within its device ecosystem. And so it has been very deliberate in selecting a handful of bespoke titles that will attract me. Coda, for instance, the the Academy Award winner from last week as Best Picture. Do you you think they have a strategy at Apple, by the way? I mean – do I think it, it I, seems they, they want scattershot. to be, <laughs> They want to be the new HBO. Uh-huh. That is my sense in in, in speaking with HBO people. HBO meaning that it's a th- the, thing it, that coastal people value. It they there is a sensibility in in Netflix's I'm sorry, in Apple's content, this sort of inoffensive middle market sensibility to that, that I think is best characterized by Ted Lasso. It's this warm, sentimental mm-hmm. program that that received quite a bit of a claim. And I think that that's perhaps the the a title that's emblematic of So family-friendly HBO. Yes. And, uh, you know, no, there was, a, as we reported in the book, there was like this this tension within a- Apple about whether or not to depict smoking in, uh, mm-hmm. you know, for, for, for all mankind, this, uh, this telling of the, uh, na- an alternate telling of the na- NASA story. So Apple is very sensitive about the optics and how consumers will perceive its brand. The most valuable asset that that Apple has is this pristine consumer brand. So they're not going to invest in edgy content that will potentially alienate consumers. The question is always, you know, would you guys put up Game of Thrones, which has incest in the first episode? And they I think the answer is no. Probably not. (laughs) We haven't seen it. But back to the the question about about the, the streaming, the spending part of the streaming wars. Do you think anyone is eventually going to say the only way to do this is to match Netflix dollar for dollar and we're going to go even, – even Disney has not gone all in to the extent that, that Netflix has. Do you think that changes eventually? I think that the traditional media companies are in this moment seeing themselves as benefiting from multiple revenue streams. Let's, let's be candid. Although the cable TV world is in decline, it is still a lucrative source of revenue. And so um, – Companies like Comcast are loath to, you know, to abandon that very rich source of revenue either in advertising or in in, in terms of uh, fees that they collect from cable distributors. So I think that for the moment, they're perfectly happy to try to straddle both worlds. Yeah. Uh, I think Disney is uh, – Disney claims it's spending $30 billion on content and they, they say that much of this will end up nourishing its streaming service. Uh, and they burned off several of their their new releases to retain or attract subscribers to Disney Plus, like Turning Red was exclusively a streaming title, much to the dismay of the animators who had hoped for a theatrical release. How do we assess the impact of the pandemic on the streaming wars, right? The, um, Netflix had said, look, we had this huge burst of signups. That was because of the pandemic. And that's why we don't have as many now. A lot of the streaming servers that we're discussing put movies and stuff on the streaming service in part because they wanted to boost the streaming service, but also there were no, no theaters other. to put them in. 
Do we think those strategies get reset if we move back to a – I mean, we still all had to show proof of vaccination to get in this room together. But um, if, if, if we go back to closer to a pre-pandemic world, do those streaming strategies change as well? I think the most disrupted is the theatrical market, as you alluded to. Um, we saw some experimentation during the pandemic with the theaters closed. Uh, Warner Brothers had the option of releasing all of its slate on HBO Max, much to the benefit of this nascent streaming service. Uh, and there was very little in terms of retaliation from the exhibitor community. There was no peril in doing that because the exhibitors were, for the most part, closed. The theater chains could not. They could stomp their feet. Correct. But they couldn't do anything else. And when Jason Kyler and Warner Media brought Batman to the theaters this spring, they said, Great, we're happy to have Exactly. So there was no so there was no threat of retaliation. That has what that has been a major inhibiting factor because obviously theatrical is a giant source of revenue. I think that we we're, we haven't emerged from this place. I think what we are likely to see in the near term is uh, a certain type of movie will be really, really theatrical. Some the superhero movies, yeah. the action movies, the horror movies, the movies that that meet the demographic of people who are in theaters right now. Um, it tends to be a younger demo. Maybe they're immortal. Um, <laughs> they're going to theaters, and so we'll see those movies, those big budget movies that require. Uh, multiple revenue streams to to net out um, will continue to be released in theaters. But I think perhaps a permanent change brought accelerated by COVID is the sort of ca smaller character driven adult dramas, I think, go directly to streaming in the future. Those adult dramas, romantic comedies, all the stuff that Hollywood either stopped making or certainly isn't is loath to put in theaters. Do those drive uh, acquisitions and signups, Julia? Yes. Yeah. For, so I think we have to examine the techno the tech changes that led to where we are now with film, where in 1996, 1997 to 2002, HBO said, hey, we do really, really good television at home. And you're going to get really great dramas at home. And everyone said, well, we want to do that. John Langraff comes in 2006 to FX and said, we're going to do that. And, you know, all these other companies, all these other networks say we're going to go into this AMC starts up. And all of a sudden, what we're telling consumers is you're going to get the best drama that you can at home at at the same time, 2008 marks a very big turning point for this um, for theater for theaters where you have The Dark Knight and Iron Man come out, right? And all of a sudden, it's like the three types of movies that consumers will consistently go to are the three S's: it's superhero sequels and scaries. And if we think about why, because you cannot get that type of audio or visual technology at home, despite because you can get decent um, home home audio sets now and home TV sets, you can't get that in theaters. And if we think about horror movies, why horror movies always overperform considering their budgets? People like to be scared together; they like to laugh together. They're they, if and especially in COVID, if you're going to go to a theater and you're going to go spend twenty dollars on gas, you're going to go do all these things. You better have a good time. It's a hundred dollar a night. Like you better have the best time. And what we've said at the same time is all the other movies that you still really like, that there's still an audience for it, there's still a demand for, you can get this as part of your streaming package and you're going to be very happy with it. So we do see a lot of these dramas, a lot of rom-coms actually are big high acquisition drivers for all the streaming services. But that's because the perceived value of that title is much less for the main, for the general consumer base than the perceived value of seeing Spider-Man. I always theater. figured that, and I don't know why, that those were things that people liked having on the service and liked watching but weren't weren't going to you weren't signing up to Netflix because they had a rom-com there you may you may not even have known they had the rom-com there but once they showed it to you you said oh great well, the other thing about rom-coms, too, so comedies tend to over-index with women and women over 40. Uh, according to our data, we look at audience demographic. So 
the majority of the people who are signing up for streaming services who are women in their 40s are doing so for TV shows, not necessarily for movies. And then they watch the movies when they're there and they're very happy to have it. The underserved audience, which is funny to say now because they weren't in 2006, um, is teenage girls. Where the, if we think about what's in movies right now, it's teen boys. If we think about what the big shows are, you know, are teen boys for a lot of it. You think of Marvel, you think of all the DC stuff on the on the TV side and all the HBO things. And then all of a sudden, HBO goes, well, we kind of want to be a four-quadrant service with HBO Max, and we really need teen girls. We're going to do this thing called Euphoria and see how it turns out. Huge audience. Netflix goes, we're going to do this thing with Mindy Kaling called Never Have I Ever. We're going to do 13 Reasons Why. We're going to do all these different shows for that really target teen girls. Huge numbers. And so the streaming space has really become this great ground for teen girls to find their new favorite show in a way that they don't get out of the theatrical experience. So they're spending all their time there. So what the, the streaming services are trying to do is find those underserved audience, get into it. And then they're also trying to say, well, we would like a Star Wars. So we would like to figure out what our Star Wars is going to be. And you get to the point where you're either going to be a niche service that says we're targeting a very specific group. Uh, I don't use the word niche for this, but Stars is a great um, streaming service that really uh, is appealing to African-Americans who want to watch something that is not, they're not getting elsewhere, which is great for them. And they've seen great success by going in that direction. Or you try to be what Netflix and HBO Max are trying to be, which is like something for everyone and has uh, things across the board. But I do think... When we think about movies and where we are now, because to Don's point, it is one of the most upended moments in film history. We've been training people for years, for decades to see like the best drama content you're going to get, film or otherwise, is at home. HBO with HBO Max wants to be something for everyone. Netflix wants to be something for everyone. Another way of describing that is they are becoming the new cable package. Yep. It's just that you're spending $20 instead of 80 or 100 I think that's pretty good. But for a while, one of the pitches for streaming was we're going to do niche stuff and you can – if you and they still have it, right? AMC has Shutter, and if you are a hardcore fan of this thing or of anime, you will sign up for that. CISO was an early attempt to do this at, at, at Comcast and, mm -hmm. and, and NBC Universal. I remember it. I thought it was kind of interesting because I was a comedy nerd and they were doing comedy uh, for comedy nerds. Went nowhere. You spend time discussing it in in your book. Why did you spend time discussing this the the short life of CISO? I, I, it really sort of distilled the dilemma within these big media companies. So it's 2015. It is abundantly clear that streaming is on the horizon, and so NBC engaged in this sort of toe in the water experiment. They took uh, what was his her its heritage and comedy and decided to build out a streaming service for people who love comedy, you know, building on its legacy of we Saturday Night Live. and SNL exactly. The Office. Precisely. So here was an opportunity to play to its strengths, but in a way that didn't threaten cable companies. It didn't wasn't, wasn't directly competing with cable for primetime broadcasts. So it was an interesting experiment. And here's where the, the tensions between the old and new business models are met. The CEO of CISO, so CISO went to... Steve Burke, who at the time led NBC Universal, and said, pull the office off of Netflix. We know that this is the most popularly, popularly streamed show. Let's put it on CISO, and that will propel our, the growth of our service. Steve Burke said yes. Within NBCU, the, someone within distribution went to Netflix and said, we're going to pull the office from your service. How much will you give me to keep it? And so the price that Netflix paid went from a reported $60 million to $100 million. And at that point, it became too expensive for NBC to take this valuable content. So someone off of whose Netflix. job it is to get money from Netflix yes. at NBCU said, I, I, 
actually, I want to I want to keep getting money from Netflix because that's good for me. Even though my bosses have agreed to not do this, I'm going to undermine them by getting Netflix to pay more. Right, and and I'm told that uh, the executive leading um, CISO went back to Steve Burke and said, "In two years from now, when our service fails, I want you to remember this moment." And guess what happened? The service failed. It did. And <laughs> there's a there's a there's a punchline at the end, right, where NBC eventually does take the office back from Netflix to watch. Peacock. Peacock. I had to remember that it was what it was called, which is they're still kind of they're still towing the water, right? Exactly. They're Comcast. They, they are they are the least all in of all the big media conglomerates into the streaming world, and they have every reason to be slow. Uh, so so why would a giant cable company look to accelerate the disintegration of the bundle? Um, and so they are the most uh, cautious in embracing the, the the streaming revolution. The content isn't available at, in the same. At the same time that it's available on TV, it's 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 encumbered in so many ways. The spending for original content is nowhere near what the other streamers are spending to provide originals, and the service has been a slow grower. Speaking of niche services that are tied to um, cable conglomerates, CNN Plus launched <laughs> last week. Uh, do my standard disclaimer: we made a TV show that is on uh, CNN Plus. It's called Land of the Giants. You have heard versions of that podcast, and now it's a TV show. What what do you th- what do you guys think of CNN's stated logic for why they are la- why they have launched this thing which is not CNN it doesn't replace CNN there is some live programming but it doesn't do the thing that CNN does which is if something's happening you turn it on and they're telling you about it it's mostly on demand stuff like the TV show that I get to help I got to help make what do you think of that prospect Julia I had drinks with someone at CNN. <laughs> Uh, which is how every good story starts. And I said, I, I, I said, I have no data to prove this. I just think the CNN Plus proposition to me feels like a talent retention bet. It is this idea of you have all this talent and we're in the middle of a talent war. And those you have very and they have nice jobs, but CNN's going through upheaval. They just lost their leader. They're going through all these things that are happening. Even before that, there's just all these messes happening within Warner Media. And CNN Plus comes around and is like, we want to give you the opportunity to do more things because you guys want to do more things that you can't do on the network. You can't do this because we're 24-7 news um, and, and talking about you know political issues. And I said this and they said, I've heard similar things, but I don't know. So Anderson Cooper, Jake Tapper, one of them has a book club. Maybe it's Jake, Jake Tapper. Tapper. So Jake Tapper, we already pay you a lot of money to be on TV. We are somehow going to pay you more money or or just give the opportunity to have your own book club? I, I do think there's this idea of how do we keep our talent happy? We're seeing this right now within sports, all the megacasters who are signing up with Amazon and all these huge companies and uh, to go and do bigger things. I think if you're CNN, one, you want to keep your hosts happy because your hosts are the reason people are tuning into you. Your anchors are really it and, and the reporting. But two, infotainment, which is the kind of programming they're doing, it's like documentary style stuff, is not a big acquisition driver. It's not something that people sign up for. So the only thing I can think with the exception of Land of the Giants, now the exceptional <laughs> Land of the Giants, and I do like Scott Galloway. So I, I think I signed up for him in your show, of course, and and Stelter. I, I signed up for all of those. So I mean, that's the thing. It, CNN Plus is a niche network. If you're someone who likes to watch Brian Stelter because you're obsessed with the media, which media people are, um, you'll sign up. You'll pay the six dollars to watch it to get more access to it. The biggest issue with CNN Plus is the plus. It is this. It's a, the same issue that ESPN Plus ran into. It is this idea of that plus signifies you are going to have more like the original and then more. But you do not get CNN on CNN Plus. You don't get ESPN on ESPN Plus. And so this idea that you're going to get someone to pay $6 a month 
to a, a, an average consumer to sign up for something where they're just kind of getting documentary programming, a lot of which is available on HBO Max and a lot of which feels like it's available on lots dis- of other places on Discovery Plus, other yeah. places because it's that type of programming. It's a really hard sell. So the only thing I can think of and they know that. So the only thing I can think of is you're trying to bring the brand into a digital age. You're trying to make that brand more prolific going forward to a younger audience. And two, you are trying to keep that talent happy. Boy, I, I, that's a funny the, – the talent retention is an interesting idea because I always thought the way you can tell if these services are for real is what does the talent do there? And if the talent is still spending most of their time on the linear network where they get paid the most money to do this stuff, where they have the biggest audiences, that's the tell. And so if Jake Tapper is doing a book club once a week or whatever it is, and maybe it's a fine show, um, that's an indicator that that really, that no one is really, is, is for as much money and, and effort as they're spending on this, it's not really what they, follow the talent. If the talent's spending most of their time on, on TV, that's what matters internally. Well, I don't think like they would leave the linear network at any point. You, you could pay them to do it, right, if you wanted to, or if they thought that's where the audience was. Right. Right, but then I they would do, do it. I do think it's this way of saying like, hey, we'll pay you more, obviously, and you get to do something that's more fun, which is what they're doing. It's a little bit more fun, and we are going to help launch this network, which is very important to you because you make a lot of money off the main network, and so we would like to bring this forward into a new age. I think that's their proposition. I don't think it was we have a lot of great well, I don't want to say that. I don't, I don't think they looked at it and said, we have a lot of you know exclusive content that we think people will sign up for. We do have great talent that we think we can use in different ways on the streaming service that might get people who are super diehard CNN fans to sign up to see more of the talent doing that. Don, what's your sense of, of, of CNN super fans? Do they exist? They exist for Fox, right? There are right, people who absolutely. will follow Tucker Carlson's bile wherever he spews it and they will consume it wherever. On ESPN, you might not think of yourself as an ESPN super fan, but maybe you are really into Ultimate Fighting or College of the Cross. Whatever it is, they have it. You will pay something for it. Do you think those people exist for for Anderson Cooper and Jake Tapper and Brian Stelter? Besides Julia, who just identified herself as a Stelter I'm a, fan. I'm a, I'm a Stelter fan as well. But, um, oh, we are. We all are. <laughs> I am – I'm not convinced of the proposition. I thought it was an audacious move two weeks before an acquisition to launch an expensive product, uh, you know, so, sort of in, and not give the new, the new owners of Warner Media the opportunity to make a choice. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a really bold uh, move on the part of uh, the outgoing leadership at Warner Media. I'm skeptical that a CNN superfan exists. Um, it certainly has a really powerful news brand. And the premise, the business proposition, as it was explained to me, was, look, people are willing to pay for news. You know, the New York Times is having tremendous success in terms of its digital subscriptions by creating these really passionate niche products or, you know, around cooking and other, other you know, other segments of its, of its uh, news business. Um, there is no equivalent in the video world. So here's an opportunity for us. And indeed, there is an opportunity to sort of find new ways, new ways of storytelling. You know, so, so perhaps it's a you know, future bet that I can't see from here. Mm-hmm. But I know that the news consumer is, is, is elsewhere. They're on TV. They're online. I'm not sure that I need to have a streaming service that won't have the Im- immediacy of a broadcast or Twitter or social media or their website. So I'm not sure how they will they will reconcile my perception of where to go for breaking news and a streaming service, which seems less immediate. Very polite. Um, when I end this with this question for both of you, whenever there is a discussion online about a new streaming service and 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 stuff being aggregated together and rebundled. Someone says, "Hey, you should you should take all the channels and you should put them together and you sell them for like eighty bucks." And that we used to call that cable TV. Ha ha ha. 
One, do we think that we are headed back to that, where you are essentially going to pay something equivalent to what you used to pay for cable, and you're going to get a bunch of stuff? And two, if we are going there, do we think that's good, Julia? I think as we see more consolidation happen, you get to a point where you naturally start building that back up. If we think because about- the because the big conglomerates will basically force you to get discovery with your HBO. Exactly. If we think about, you know, we were just talking about CNN Plus, to which I also agree with Don. I don't get the business proposition. I was trying to get it from their perspective. I also don't think, especially under Zaslav, this thing lasts more than, you know, 18 months, and that's being nice. Although, oh, he, he did help launch CNBC and MSNBC. Yes. So it's not he, like he's he... also not gone out of his way to knock down the story saying he doesn't like the service and wants to fold it in. Fair talk. Fair. So, well, I mean, we'll see what happens. But if we look at what he wants to do and he has said that he wants everything on one platform, at that point, you're creating cable light, right? You have your HBO Max as general entertainment, your Discovery Plus, and that's kind of your more niche reality programming. And then you've got CNN, that's your news. It's your, ideally, it's news and you have a heartbeat. It's additive to what it is. You add in some sports there that they have the rights to, and all of a sudden that's cable light. Like that's what that package is, and they want to do it because that makes sense for what all of their various divisions. I do think um, and it makes sense for them because they are selling one product at a higher price and not having to, not having four different services trying to to claw. Right, and it, and you'll hear Disney talks about this all the time, where their churn rate amongst their bundle is much lower for bundle subscribers than it is for individual subscribers. So for them, pushing that bundle makes a lot more sense. Disney literally forced me to take ESPN Plus. <laughs> yes, and, they did. Uh, what else did I get? Oh, and Disney Plus. Yeah, yeah. Because I was already paying for Hulu. Yeah. One day they just started said, "Here's your new thing." You're paying us more now. Exactly. And so one, I mean, this makes the numbers look really nice across the board for the street when they're talking about two to three time projection growth where they're saying we're going to hit 230, 260 million subscribers by 2024. And you can say, well, look, there's a lot of more Hulu subscribers, whether or not they're engaged, who knows? You know, ESPN Plus has seen insane growth, whether or not people are watching it, who knows? But you've got a bundle. It's much harder to cancel. So automatically you have a ESPN So the Plus conglomerates up. want the bundle to come back. I would argue that the big conglomerates want the bundle to come Don, back. Don, you're nodding. I absolutely. I think that there is there is a likelihood of consolidation. We're already seeing some of the contours of it in little little startups that are beginning to aggregate a collection of these passionate niche services. I, I you know I'm not going to necessarily buy ten streaming services. You know one one that uh, you know addresses my anime love or perhaps my love of of horror. I think that that there's an opportunity for companies like Stroom, uh, which has sort of a class pass uh, approach where I pay one monthly fee and then I can voraciously browse 60 different services and find the, the so they're subscribing things. to them on my behalf and then I, I pick and choose. Mm -hmm. And then it's it's uh, you know so so you have uh, an opportunity to indulge sort of your interests. With do we think the do we think consumers want the bundle back? I'm biased against it. I bought into the 2015 2017 idea of Buy the thing you like. If you don't like it, stop paying for it. If you are into anime for six months, subscribe to Crunchyroll or whatever it is and then turn it off. And that's better for everyone. And and the thing that we all complained about for decades or at least a full decade with I have to pay for sports on my cable package and I don't like sports and I want just want to watch Mad Men. Um, and don't tell me it's good for me. I just want to watch the thing I want to watch and pay for it. So are we going backwards or, or or does it turn out the bundle is a good thing and we should learn to accept it and get over it, get over our 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 old ideas about the bundle? I think humans fundamentally want what is the easiest, cheapest, easiest, cheapest option, which do not necessarily go hand in hand together. And I do think to your point just now, the big. I think uh, indicator of this will be sports. The sports world is more fragmented than ever. Trying to be a baseball fan in 2022 is insanity. 
to watch anything because you're, you're signing up for so many different things and you're still keeping your cable bundle because you still need ESPN and you still need all these other things. Once we get to, you know, 45, 40 paying TV households, which is, you know, far off. We're still at 75, I think, or 70 close That's to million. Million. Million, yeah. So I think once we get to that point and the leagues and the cable companies and the distributors can kind of say, okay, well, now the flip side, now the people are over here, we can There used out. to be 90 to 100 million people yeah. getting cable TV. That number has been shrinking a lot, and that is why there's an entire streaming war that Don's able to write a book about. Um, but eventually you think it will settle at 45 or 50. I don't know if it's settled, but I think once we get to around that point, then you have to start having conversations about, okay, the majority of your audience who was signing up for cable for sports and news is now getting their sports and news from other services. Where does that leave us? What does that look like? I think, you know, there's a reason sports are a foundational thing for signing up. It's people will seek it out and they'll pay for it. But if you get to this place where it's really fragmented you get, and you get to a place where piracy gets a lot easier and a lot better, it just becomes this moment of like the cable package is the easier version to just have everything and people will pay for it to have the 4K. But the bigger issue to end my point on this is um, no, the, the companies are no longer making good entertainment content for cable and broadcast. So the yes. issue that you're having is the actual entertainment stuff. The TV side of it is fragmented, and that's where all the budget is going. Yeah. I see an opportunity for the aggregators already. Look, Amazon and Roku are already uh, making markets for all these streaming services. I think that they're the, they're the logical winners, and potentially Apple as well. You know, as be serving as sort of the de facto cable company, where I go to one destination and find all of my content, and I no longer need. The cable, the cable company. Unfortunately, it I just means they're the more. new. They, they want to be the new cable distributor, right? Exactly. But the, but the programmers all know that, and they're saying, "No, no, we don't want." I mean, they, they all fight with Roku over this very thing. They say, "No, no, you're not going to be our, our rebundler. If there's going to be a rebundling, we're going to be the rebundler. We're going to make you take HBO plus Discovery plus CNN. Exactly. We're going to make you take ESPN plus Disney." Um, and I think that will be the big fight. I thought this was going to be a short conversation. We gotta go. But I'm delighted I had both Don and Julia on. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Thanks again to Julia and Don and Michael Nathanson and Jelani, who produced and edited this show. Jelani is great. Thanks to our sponsors who bring this show to you for free. Thanks to you guys for listening and writing and pitching me new people to talk to. This is Recode Media. We'll see you next week. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva.